This is Dr. Michael Wald, and you are listening to Ask the Blood Detective. I'm a holistic doc that practices in Westchester County, located about an hour north of New York City. For those of you who want to let me know your show ideas, please call me at 914-552-1442 or email me at info at blooddetective.com. You can also contact me and listen to some of my other shows, watch my other videos at my website, at intmedny.com. That's intmedny.com. Today's show topic I've decided to call the many faces of blood sugar. You know, I have been practicing uh, holistic health care for just around 30 years now, and I see a pretty intelligent population. The people that I tend to see are very similar to you. They're individuals who spend a good deal of time uh, thinking about their health and uh, a good deal of time implementing healthy lifestyle habits for a variety of reasons, but mostly all towards one goal. And that is to live as long as possible in the non-disability stage of life. In other words, living, for the most part, symptom-free so you can enjoy your life. And... The other uh, reason that many people pursue natural health care and, and implement it in their, in their daily lives is to reduce the risk of developing, let's say, a certain health problem like heart disease or diabetes or cancer or maybe an autoimmune disease that tends to run in their family history. So I'm always astounded when I speak with such intelligent people around the blood sugar issue when they seem to be quite surprised that there are more factors that are not sugar that affect blood sugar. Let me say that again. There are, but I'll say it differently, there are more factors, more influences in our daily lives that impact our blood sugar than does eating sugar. Now, sugar certainly can affect your blood sugar, but it's not as if every time you eat sugar, your blood sugar has to increase. Let me back up. First of all, why do we even have a blood sugar? Why are we even talking about blood sugar? Well, in my mind, we're talking about blood sugar because blood sugar issues may relate to a large variety of health problems. Some of these problems are extremely deadly like pulmonary infarctions and blood clots and, and hardening of the arteries, for example. And they will impact your very lifespan. So persons with blood sugar issues tend not to live the average lifespan. And those that do tend to suffer from what is uh, euphemistically known in disease care, 
I wanted to say the healthcare system, but there's not a whole lot of health involved in it. It is really the disease care system called disease clusters. So people don't merely have, let's say, headaches and eczema or constipation and heart disease. They tend to have several different conditions all at once. Now, sometimes they know about it uh, and sometimes they do not. There are lots of health problems like blood sugar that fester for years and then all of a sudden become problemsome. So most of you out there, if not all of you, have had blood tests done by your doctors and they've measured your blood sugar. And your blood sugar should be in a particular range on average. And just so you know, a non-fasting blood sugar number the highest it should be is 85 milligrams per deciliter. Now, 85 milligrams per deciliter is in the range between the low and high for blood sugar. And most labs consider blood sugar up to about 101 to 106, the upper end of the normal range. But studies have shown that when you do not fast, meaning you might have eaten food the morning you have a blood sugar level checked, that it should never, ever be greater than 85. And I know that this is so. Several years ago, there was a study in the Journal of Endocrinology that demonstrated that people with a blood sugar, a fasting, I'm sorry, a non-fasting blood sugar, which makes blood sugar even higher, at least theoretically, if it's any higher than 85, that these people are much more predisposed to developing what's called prediabetes. So prediabetes is another term I hate because the pre part tells me that it's somehow the calm before the storm, that the pre part is not as bad as the you've arrived part, meaning diabetes. Think of it this way. If you wake up one day and you are diagnosed with diabetes. That did not happen that one day. There were many, many months to many years involved in your body's uh, inability to manage blood sugar and suddenly you're a diabetic. But it's not that sudden, it just seems that way. Or it might not, depends on the circumstance. But here's my point. The damage and the health problems that blood sugar can cause. They don't happen the day you're diagnosed. They've been happening for years before the diagnosis, during the pre-diabetic stage. So most doctors downplay the pre-diabetic stage. Most people that I see as patients say to me, oh, Dr. Well, no, 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 I'm just pre-diabetic. And they might also say in the same breath, and I'm pre-hypertensive meaning they're kind of borderline in some way, that would be an, a completely false interpretation. That's not what those chemistries and those terms mean. Now, first, I should probably tell you that I'm not just your average doc who is talking about blood sugar. I wrote a software program, which has been in, in use for about 15 years, which helps me interpret nutritionally and medically, my patient's laboratory tests results. And it helps interpret them based on average men or women, 
of your age range, but also healthy men and women of your age range. And you could imagine that if I compared you, if I, let's say you have normal blood work or pretty much normal blood work, and you say, Dr. Wald, how do I compare to people 20 years younger? You can bet that a lot of your labs would be abnormal compared to a healthier version of yourself. And for whatever reason, doctors don't think this way. Most traditional, all traditional physicians in terms of their traditional training, those that have not gone outside their traditional training, compare you to average men or women and the average man or woman is not particularly healthy in your age range. So doctors shake their heads wondering why they can't predict more disease before it's so bad, they can't prevent more disease before it's so bad. And that's because they're using the wrong comparisons. It really is not rocket science. Now, having said all this, what we're talking about here is blood sugar. We're talking about lifestyle factors and other ways in which your blood sugar can get messed up. Let's review some of these because those of you out there, and I respect your intelligence, those that I've seen, those that I've not, that think that blood sugar somehow moves itself up and down um, is on the, the wrong uh, track. So for example, what can make your blood sugar increase? Well, we'll start with some basic things. If you eat too much food, like a meal or a snack with more carbohydrates than usual, particularly the simple carbohydrates, like um, even grapes. You're saying, really, what? Well, grapes are glucose. All the other fruit, including bananas, are fructose. And they do not generally increase blood sugar that much or at all, even in a diabetic. And also just eating too much calories of any type tends to play with blood sugar adversely. When you eat food, whether it's a protein, a simple carbohydrate, which means it is very simple chemically, it involves no digestion, it has a tendency to increase the blood sugar level very quickly in some people, or it's a complex carbohydrate where it may not affect the blood sugar at all uh, by increasing it, it might in fact lower it. But there are times in which even complex carbohydrates can increase blood sugar, even though that's what you're told to eat when you have a high blood sugar, to eat a more, more complex carbohydrate diet, right? Well, another cause of an increase in blood glucose would be inactivity. So if you're not active, common sense, I would hope, would tell you that your body will become more insulin resistive. It will have more fat on it, of course. Uh, being less active might, over a period of time, cause you to lose what's called lean body mass. And these changes that I've just described cause blood sugar levels to rise. So inactivity is very dangerous for blood sugar on a number of levels. If I had to choose for you the most important way in which to help your blood sugar, not even knowing you, and comparing exercise or diet, let's say the healthiest diet you possibly could eat for your particular kind of blood sugar problem, 
you know, caused by any number of things, I would have to choose exercise over all of the dietary factors. There are exceptions, but if I had to choose now, exercise is the most important factor for blood sugar management. And why is that? Well, some of it, again, is pretty straightforward. If you're more active, you will burn blood sugar more evenly. Your liver and your muscles will control their glycogen levels better. And glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrate that the body uses to manage its blood sugar. And exercise might also improve blood flow and reduce stress in different organs that might have caused blood sugar to increase. And being active, reducing the stress in the body overall, because stress is a big factor for lowering blood uh, sugar, or I should say increasing blood sugar. Stress will increase blood sugar, whether it's physical stress that's not balanced physical stress, like over-exercising, but the proper amount of exercise tends to balance blood sugar levels. The other factor that I find very, very odd when I meet with people uh, that have quite a lot of intelligence in the nutrition area is they assume that they know what exercise even is. So when I say exercise to most people, in their minds, they're saying, oh, well, I know what to do for exercise. I've done it. I'm just too lazy. I haven't had it done. Or there's some other reason why I shouldn't do it. Um, but then when I ask them and challenge them, so when I say, what, what is exercise for you? What do you think you should be doing for your high blood sugar? And they might say, well, you know, I'm very active and I work long hours. I'm always on my feet. And I say, that's not exercise. And if you have blood sugar issues, which is why you're here, clearly that's not helping. So running around all day and doing life, that's called activities of daily living. And I consider those like breathing. They're essential and we can't, we don't, we can't do without them, but they're not going to do it when it comes to making big differences in lowering of blood sugar. So the type of exercise needs to be personalized for each individual and it has to focus on the health problems of the, of the individual. So if you had, if you're over 50 years old and unless you weight train, for example, you're going to become sarcopenic. Sarcopenia is a fancy term for loss of lean body mass. And the way that I measure that in my office is I do a bioimpedance test where I measure the exact amount of lean body mass in someone's body, their fat mass, their water percentage, their metabolic rate, and something called phase angle. And if you've never heard of phase angle, that means you missed my show a couple of weeks back. So you'll want to look at that on my website at... Um, intmedny.com. That's intmedny.com. Phase angle is one of the most predictive tests of whether or not any of your health efforts are actually working. If you're doing something that you think is going to improve your health for the purpose of living again longer during the non-disability stage of life, and whether or not you got the right doses of supplements, you're eating the right foods. If your phase angle does not increase, as I describe in the radio show, it's not doing what you think it's doing. You might be having a good day, good week, good month, even a good couple of years. But if you don't improve phase angle, it's not happening. 
So what's important when we talk about blood sugar is the fundamental test for blood sugar is a test of the percentage of muscle, water, and fat. It is too simplistic and just dead wrong to think that the most important thing that you need to know if you want to help your blood sugar is your blood sugar is uh, incomplete. Yes, you need to know your blood sugar, but you need to know a few things about your blood sugar. In other words, one of the main factors in the body that manages blood sugar is actually how much protein is in your body and how that protein is balanced against your fat and water percentage. If you're just looking at your blood sugar itself and then trying to manipulate your sugars in your diet, uh, you're, you're missing the boat. Do you want to reduce your intake of refined and processed carbohydrates and simple sugars? Of course you do. Uh, having said that, I say of course you do because doing that seems to be part of an overall sound health plan. But many people do not uh, have success lowering their blood sugar by you know, eating the healthy diet plan, which looks something like eating lower down on the food chain, eating little or no meat, no uh, dairy products, uh, eating organically, eating pesticide-free when you can, no fried foods, of course, no refined and processed sugars and carbs. I have lots of people that do that and they still have blood sugar problems because that supposedly healthy diet is just not the healthy diet for them. Now, if you have high blood sugar or high normal blood sugar, that's not okay. Remember we said that earlier, we don't want it higher than 85 milligrams per deciliter. You may not be making enough insulin or you might have insulin resistance. So it's very important to measure your insulin levels or to measure tests of insulin resistance. There are other factors though that we all need to consider that um, are underappreciated at times if we're trying to find out why the blood sugar is high. Your blood sugar might be high, not from your diet, not from taking the wrong supplements, not from your lack of exercise, but from medications that you're taking. Steroids, for example, like prednisone, will cause hyperglycemia, high blood sugar. Antipsychotic medications, also, and there's many of them, frequently cause hyperglycemia. What's really interesting is that if you have any chronic illness at all, uh, multiple sclerosis, Sjogren's disease, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, for example, anything that's chronic and persistent, that sort of illness causes your body to release hormones to fight the illness. And these hormones tend to raise blood sugar levels. So looking at the diet, in this case, will make no difference at all. I should also mention that some of you out there have the mistaken impression that sugar is sugar. Blood sugar is glucose. Now, just because you eat glucose in the form of grapes doesn't mean your glucose goes up. That's why the body has what they call regulating forces. By you eating glucose, your body makes a few other changes, moves some things around, shifts some things around, and your body maintains a blood sugar level even though you're eating sugar. 
But other times it does fail to do that. I get it. But we know that even diabetics, the worst of the worst in terms of blood sugar control, they can eat fruits. Almost none of them have problems with eating fruit. And that's because of the body's regulating mechanisms. They call them negative feedback loops in the body. So for example, if you eat a ton of calcium, your body will lose calcium through the urine to balance out the blood calcium to the point where it's almost impossible for a person to raise their blood calcium by eating calcium supplements. Even eating supplements, the blood calcium, as an example, is so tightly regulated that even when you have severe bone loss, calcium loss from bones, blood calcium almost never changes. And that's very much like blood sugar in that it has a very tight control regulation, but there's so many forces that we're exposed to that can affect blood sugar, that can raise blood sugar, that we've simply overwhelmed those regulating mechanisms. To just review for a second, we said we can get too high a blood sugar from eating just too much, even if it's too much good food too often, which is why intermittent fasting makes sense for most people done in specific ways for the specific person. We have to remember that these general recommendations we read online, for example, you go to some practitioners of holistic medicine and they have everyone do the same thing. A blood detective doesn't do the same thing. A blood detective says, what do I need? And you know, those of you who have listened to the show know that I'm all about teaching you how to properly eat and how you must go about managing your health issues and your diagnosis or diagnoses, which might be very different than someone else with the same issue, okay? So the last example I gave of blood sugar problems was how illness in general, chronic problems cause an increase in blood sugar. And the reason for that is the body goes through what's called that fight or flight reaction. Remember that? That's the stress reaction. Fight or flight are specific terms used in medicine and, and were developed by, or originated, I should say, by a Dr. Hans Selye, I believe in the 50s, when he described for the first time the stress response. So when your body's under uh, degenerative inflammatory stress, it will cause a rise in blood sugar. And the reason the body raises the blood sugar is it needs that glucose that rise in blood sugar for fleeing the scene. Because if your body's under stress, it actually thinks you're under the stress of being, you know, eaten by a saber tooth. So you need to, you need to run. But a chronic stress response causes an increase in blood sugar and more increase in blood sugar and more insulin resistance. So stress, like exercise to me, are sometimes much more important than even uh, the diet. I'll give you another example of something I've seen in my practice. I also deal with people with, uh, that have experienced short and long-term pain. Even pain from a sunburn causes your body to release hormones that raise blood glucose levels. If you have chronic arthritis or chronic discomforts that you are dealing with every day, some of you will say, well, you know, I, I've got mine under control. You know, I've got aches and pains and things, but they're not so bad. 
if you can sense them pretty much all the time, if you really kind of take a look at yourself, that's going to raise your blood sugar levels. And you might say, but yeah, no, I have that. I have chronic pain. I have a chronic illness, autoimmune disease, this, I have chronic, maybe I have cancer, whatever it is. And you're saying, no, your blood sugars are fine. Your blood sugar is fine. Your blood sugar level might be fine until it's not fine. So we need to look at other sorts of tests to know whether or not the body is dealing with the blood sugar before the blood sugar itself increases. So for example, blood sugar problems usually, and always I should say, not usually, they always involve uh, inflammation, which most of you know. So inflammation could cause the blood cells, the red blood cells or the platelets or both to stick. So whenever I see a person with an increased risk of clotting, when I, we look at their blood, we always know that there's chronic inflammation. And if the blood sugar is normal then, if it's high normal, greater than 85, we know that that's not good. But my point here is that there are several tests that tell you if blood sugar problems will happen before they happen. I'll give you another simple one, which we've already discussed. And that is your lean body mass. Your lean body mass is measured by a bioimpedance test. That is a test where I put EKG electrodes on your hand and your foot on the right side. And that goes through your body. You don't feel anything. And it measures your exact muscle mass, fat, and water weight. And if you're losing lean mass, which tends to happen as blood sugar increases, along with insulin resistance, then you know there's a problem with that lean mass. And then you need to focus on the causes of why you're losing lean mass. And there can be many, like chronic stress. Stress hormones cause sarcopenia. Stress hormones cause loss of lean mass, that's what sarcopenia is. As we age, well, as some of us age, I don't have any measurable sarcopenia. I've reversed that entirely. You will lose your lean organ mass. If you have disease and chronic stress, cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine, they will cause a loss of lean mass. Even menstrual periods which are associated with hormonal changes, will cause an increase in blood glucose. But remember, before the glucose increases, you don't see it. So if someone has chronic health problems with menstrual periods and, uh, and short or long-term pain or some chronic health problem or they're inactive, I always assume blood sugar problems because they're going to happen, meaning they may not be measurable yet, but they're gonna happen. So we wanna prevent them because it's a lot easier to prevent than to treat once it's high. We're also going to talk about things that make your blood sugar fall too rapidly too because number one, you might ha have low blood sugar or you might have high blood sugar that drops, but st it's still high. And those changes matter. So the blood sugar goes up and down and all around. Now I should mention in terms of testing though, the blood glucose we all know is a standard test and basically, it's, you're asked to do that test when you're fasting for 12 hours. I mentioned earlier, if you didn't fast for 12 hours, which is very common because lots of people go to their doctors, their doctors do blood work, and they'll take their, their glucose levels and, and, the, and the standard CBC and chemistry lab tests that most primary uh, PCPs do, and um, even the lipids, the blood fats like cholesterol, 
And you will notice that um, you might have high lipids, blood fats, and high glucose, or a normal glucose, even after you've eaten. If you've eaten, that's non-fasting, and your glucose is greater than 85, it's too high. And I'm gonna tell you that and keep drilling it into your heads because your physicians don't know it. If your primary healthcare providers have not read the articles in the medical journals about 85 or higher being a bad thing, they're gonna think 85 to 103, 106 is normal because that's the range of their lab. They would be wrong. Let's talk about, just quickly, a couple of factors that cause your blood glucose to fall, and then I'm gonna go over causes of hyperglycemia, high ones that I have not mentioned, and several others that drop the blood sugar that I have not mentioned either. I have never heard a radio show anywhere cover these. Um, it's always about just sugar affecting sugar, and that is a mistake. So one of the things that will cause your blood glucose to fall is not enough food. You know, like a meal or a snack with you know fewer carbohydrates than usual. Or if you miss a meal or snack, your blood sugar levels can really drop. So it's important to, in some individuals, to eat frequently enough. But in yet other people, they need to eat less frequently to help their blood sugar levels stay balanced. You must understand that you are very different than anyone else. And your health needs may change from time to time. So my point here is that something might work for you now to balance your blood sugar, let's say to keep it from falling, which means eating every few hours. And at another time in your life, you might find that you need to fast and not eat for every six hours. Many of you might know that your blood sugar levels can fall, your blood glucose levels can fall with alcohol consumption, especially on an empty stomach. So you have that alcohol and it causes hormonal changes that cause sudden drops in blood sugar. The other, I hope, common sense way in which your blood sugar levels can fall are those of you that take insulin. If you take too much insulin or if you take too much uh, oral diabetic medications, too much uh, metformin, for example, which is glucophage, you might cause hypoglycemia. There are supplements as well that could cause a dramatic uh, drop in uh, blood sugar. And one example would be uh, lipoic acid. So I make a pharmaceutical grade lipoic acid and lipoic acid is part of the B vitamin family. And lipoic acid is more important than chromium. It's much, much more important than cinnamon um, or any other factor that you've heard for blood sugar regulation. Um, if you have high blood sugar and you take the right dose of lipoic acid, your blood sugar will come down. You will reduce damage to the nerves, which glucose uh, that is in excess will cause. This uh, thing's called neuropathies, which are pain syndromes caused by hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, causing damage to nerves. Before you feel chronic pain or numbness in the bottom of your feet, these are common diabetic symptoms. You might just feel itchy, you might feel achy, uh, you might have problems sleeping because that's controlled by the nervous system. The nerves are damaged with hyperglycemia.
So um, if you take the right amount of lipoic acid, it will bring down that blood sugar. If you take too much, you'll cause hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. Um, it, that's, it's not too common to do that, but uh, if you have, if I, when I'm dealing with patients that have uh, hyperglycemia, if alpha lipoic acid is the right thing to do, and it usually is, the blood sugar will come down. And if, we, if I miss the mark a little bit, the blood sugar will be low, and then we need to reduce the alpha lipoic acid. The way in which I find out the dose of lipoic acid is based on the person's lean body mass. A person needs a certain number of milligrams of lipoic acid per kilogram of their lean body mass. The same is true for magnesium or whatever other nutrients that I give people. If you want to get to the bottom of diseases, if you want to prevent properly, if you want to maintain your health properly, you want to base your nutrient intake on your body mass test or your bioimpedance test. Because, for example, a person who weighs, you know, 40 more pounds than you, for example, or, and is a runner or someone who's a weight trainer or someone who just does Pilates or what have you, and they have a certain body composition, their need for protein, carbohydrates, and fats, and their need for specific dosing of supplements is clearly different. So mostly, the, I suppose the biggest error that I see in my clinical practice, which I know is true of many other practices because I do a fair amount of um, consulting where I go to doctor's offices and I observe them and I give feedback is that people are just on the wrong doses and the practitioners are giving the wrong doses as well. They're giving people what the bottles might say. They might give them a little less. They might give them a little bit more. But so many people are missing out on maximizing the health benefit by not paying attention to the lean body mass. This is not my opinion. Lean body mass measurements are known to be the most predictive test in human beings predicting morbidity and mortality, meaning predicting quality of life problems and length of life problems. And the more one improves the lean body mass, I've said this before in other blood detective radio shows, is uh, all about that lean body mass. And the phase angle I mentioned earlier in the show is part of that lean body mass measurement. There are many medications, like I mentioned, that have a side effect of causing hypoglycemia just as there are medications that have a side effect of causing hyperglycemia. Sometimes the medication doses have to be increased. Sometimes they have to be decreased. Sometimes they need to be taken at different times during the day. And guess what, folks? If you're taking nutritional supplements that are not fixing these biochemical problems, then you might need to take them at different times of the day too. There's something called nutritional timing where nutrients simply might work much better if you just took them at a different time during the day. But the other common error that I see uh, in my practice and other practices that I do consulting work with is uh, not only are people getting the wrong timing down of supplementation, not only are people getting the wrong dosing uh, for their nutritional supplementation, but they seem to base, uh, if they're doing it right, on how they're feeling. And uh, that's... it's mostly wrong or at the very least incomplete to, to base whether or not you think your health efforts are working based on how you feel. 
most people will tend to feel, or let's say some people, will tend to feel fine, even if they have hyperglycemia. They might feel fine if they have hypoglycemia. They might be a little tired, but they may not be because their blood sugar might be low and that stress might be caused by high adrenal hormone secretion. So the person feels good. Uh, and there are other ways the body compensates. So my point is that judging whether or not your health efforts are working based on the fact that you feel pretty good or really good is going completely blind. That's important. Of course, you want to feel good. But if you're feeling good and your pH of your blood is in the normal range, if you're feeling good and your tests of blood vessel dilation are normal, then you're doing great. If you're feeling good and your lactic acid levels are within acceptable ranges and not too high, this means you actually have some serious health building going on. I have had countless patients over the last 30 years visit me some of them just to get checked out. They just wanted to see how they were doing. They felt they were doing fine. They just thought they would check in. And I diagnosed them with cancer, even metastatic cancer. No symptoms whatsoever other than abnormal testing that showed the problems. You've, you've heard of hypertension. They call that the silent killer. It's not the only silent killer. I had a woman come to me uh, just recently who felt fine and I tried to convince her that she had severe cardiovascular risk. And I could tell that her, that her legs were a little swollen as well. And I was concerned that that swelling might be associated with what's called venous congestion. Venous congestion could cause clots called DVTs or deep vein thromboses. And those clots could kill her. And she simply wouldn't have it. Um, she felt that she was feeling good and um, you know, she said thank you for letting me know. And she just had uh, multiple clots in her lower legs uh, move up her legs into her lungs causing lung collapse and degenerative uh, areas in her lungs called pulmonary infarctions which her lungs were literally dying and necrosing and they were collapsing. They call that atelectasis, atelectasis. And she was very lucky. She ended up in the hospital for several days. All these emergency situations happening. She should have died. By a miracle, she did not. But of course, she's got all these compromised functions. Now she understands that just because she felt well, she, she was overly convinced that feeling well meant that what the testing showed was you know, just interesting. <laughs> it's just amazing. But, but, but I have to say, I mean, this was an intelligent woman. Why would an intelligent person ignore information like that? Um, I have one answer, and I, I do believe this to be true for the most part. It is difficult, and I put myself in this category as well. If you are feeling well, and I feel well, I mean, I'm, I've said this before on shows, I'm 53 years old. I do easily an hour to two hours of weight training every single day. I run, I bike, I do karate, I've run marathons. Uh, most people who see me mistake me for someone who's about 35 to 38 years old. And if you, don't, if you think I'm bragging, I don't mean to, but take a look at my website. Go to intmedny.com, look at my picture. Even search my website for muscle shot. And you'll see what a 53-year-old can look like. My point is, I don't just look healthy, I feel it. 
Now, I don't just feel it, I do testing on myself, and my testing is consistent with how I feel. My point here was that I, like other people who feel well, I can understand how someone who feels great would, could not really compute being concerned about abnormal tests until they have some disease event or some horrific life-threatening event happen to them. And then those people tend to be motivated. And then I see them and they come back to me, they say, I should have listened. So that happens and that's not because they're dumb. That's just because we're taught, we're overly taught that unless we're in a hospital, we're pretty healthy. We're walking around, we're doing pretty good. I think you know what I mean. So it's good to be checked out. I think you should have standard laboratory work done. That standard laboratory work will, will consist of a glucose level. I also like to see hemoglobin A1C. Hemoglobin A1C is a diabetic test, they call it. And that gives us about a two to three month average of blood sugar. And I like to see something called fructosamine, fructosamine, which gives us about a two week average of blood sugar because you know, if your blood sugar is fine today, even if it's less than 85, 85 or lower, and that looks good. But if your fructosamine is too low, that means on average over two weeks, it's been too low. You might check it here, there, and, and a couple of other places, but you might miss the lows and you, you'll miss the average. But then again, there are problems with averages. If the diabetes test is a two to three months blood sugar test, and it is, the hemoglobin A1C, what if it's low half the time, it's intermediate the other half of the time, the sugar level, and it's high, hyperglycemic, the other percentage of the time. When you put that all together as an average, the hemoglobin A1C might look normal. So people are like, well, why do I feel bad? Or why is Dr. Wall telling me my blood cells are stuck together and I have this chronic inflammation and my cells are abnormally shaped and my pH in my blood is too low? That's the only one you should care about, not your saliva and your urine. Or my hormones are imbalanced. That's because you may not see it in one test. That's why you have to look at other tests that tell us whether or not you're predisposed to and or have blood sugar problems and how they have affected or are affected by your other organs. Remember what I said earlier? When you think of blood sugar levels, the level changes up or down based on a myriad of physiologic events in the body. Glucose does not change itself, is what I said earlier. Adrenal hormones might increase the blood sugar initially and might drop it and decrease it after chronic stress. Inflammation of new, uh, new inflammation or old chronic inflammation or new or acute or chronic illness might cause blood sugar levels to fluctuate all over the place. Your body's digestive system might be going through something. You might not have any digestive symptoms, but it will communicate with other neuroendocrine aspects of your physiology causing blood sugar problems or blood sugar problems eventually but 12 other problems before that that are not recognized as blood sugars on the way. I hope I'm doing an adequate job in explaining this idea. Blood sugar is just one thing. It's an important thing, but it's not causing itself. And we have to look into the reasons why blood sugars either up or down or if there are certain abnormalities in your chemistry, 
they might predispose you to blood sugar problems eventually. When it's too late. People usually wait too late. Now, before I summarize very succinctly, other causes of both hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, I just wanted to talk about physical exercise for a second. More physical exercise that you do than usual makes your body more sensitive to insulin and that can lower your blood sugar. So you exercise a lot and you're really tired. Or maybe you're not tired. Maybe it's your brain that's mostly suffering from or feeling the effects of the hypoglycemia from new exercise you've begun or harder than average exercise that you've begun. Your blood sugar drops. And only until your body is conditioned to that level of exercise will your body be able to manage it without dropping blood sugar levels too low. And maybe you tend to still feel a bit fatigued from your exercise. Well, that might mean that your food timing needs to be adjusted. Not just your sugar intake, but your protein and healthy fat intake. And how you combine and how you time your protein, your carbohydrate and fats make all the difference uh, in not just your blood sugar, but how your body works, how it puts on more lean body tissue, how it burns fat. So I'm gonna summarize here a number of factors and I'm gonna state them very succinctly and to the point, like bullet points that you need to know that are factors that affect your blood sugar levels going high and your blood sugar levels dropping. And what's fascinating about all these things is that some of the factors that I'm gonna tell you that increase and decrease blood sugar are in the food category then some are in the medication category. Then I'll talk about how activity increases or decreases blood sugar. And then I'm gonna let you know about other biological uh, factors that play upon your body that will affect your blood sugar either way, up or down, even other environmental uh, impacts of blood sugar, and even uh, how blood sugar affects and is affected by certain behavioral and decision-making factors. So here we go. So in terms of food, carbohydrate quantity uh, tends to increase blood sugar. If you eat enough of it, carbohydrates are gonna increase your blood sugar. And now listen, there are always exceptions to the rule, but just bear that in mind. The carbohydrate type, whether it's simple carbohydrate or complex carbohydrate, the simples tend to raise your blood sugar to normal. If you're extreme with the simples, they could raise you beyond the normal. And then refined, refined uh, and processed carbohydrates will tend to raise your blood sugar as well. And then the complex carbohydrates, like grains, for example, beans, and nuts and seeds, they tend to more regulate as well, but not always, not even half the time. That's why I like to check someone's reaction to blood sugars um, very carefully against certain um, triggers of, of blood sugar problems. Fat will tend to increase blood sugar. Proteins also tend to increase blood sugar or help to balance it. Meal timing definitely has an impact on blood sugar in susceptible people. Sometimes a person needs to eat every few hours. Others need to not eat something for six hours or even every 12 hours. So it's, it's up to me as a clinician to figure out 
how one's lifestyle needs to be managed around managing blood sugar. But if we're going to manage the blood sugar, folks, we have to manage the reasons for the blood sugar, which might be their chronic disease. And it's not so much the fruit they're eating. I'm trying to get across, and I hope I'm doing a, a decent job of it, that lots of factors influence blood sugar other than blood sugar. And a person needs what they need for their needs to manage it. That's what a blood detective figures out. Dehydration will increase blood sugar. And from a medication point of view, there are medications. The dose of a certain medication could cause high blood sugar, low blood sugar. The timing of the medication could also mess up your blood sugar. Steroids always increase blood sugar. So prednisone will always do that. And vitamin B3, which is niacin, tends to increase blood sugar. As far as activities go, light exercise tends to decrease blood sugar. High intensity exercise and moderate exercise could decrease your blood sugar, might increase your blood sugar. But again, this really depends on the person doing the exercise. In other words, if you're not conditioned, let's say, and of a certain age on certain medications, you might do moderate or high intensity exercise and it might lower your blood sugar and another individual might increase it. Many people feel that this whole concept or the thinking about health in general is so sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down and how do you know? It's actually quite easy. All I want to know is how these things are, are, are affected by your participation in your life. I don't care about average people. To average a bunch of people together inherently makes it wrong because it's not based on a real life situation. So I, I take it very seriously with each person that I see to make sure that I figure out what they need, not what some average might need. The time of day of exercise can affect blood sugar. It could increase your blood sugar or decrease your blood sugar. So very important to find out when is the right time of day for things to work for you against some laboratory tests. Now, what are some other effects of high in blood sugar uh, and what I consider uh, to be in the what are called, what's called the biologic category? So, for example, if you don't sleep well, lack of sleep tends to increase blood sugar. Lack of sleep increases blood sugar. Stress and illness, as I said earlier, whether it's acute or chronic, although this can vary, but it's mostly increasing blood sugar. So chronic stress, chronic illness increases blood sugar. And if, let's see, oh yes, there is something called the dawn phenomenon. So I'll repeat that, that's the dawn phenomenon which means is even a diabetic or regular individual may have higher blood sugar in the morning. So that's from biologic circadian rhythms. And then any individual with allergies, allergies of any type tend to trigger inflammation and that's interpreted as a stress in the body and that can cause hyperglycemia. Uh, menstruation, as I mentioned, during one's periods, most women will experience hyperglycemia, high blood sugar. Some might be hypoglycemia. Again, why is that? Because they're individuals. 
Puberty. During active puberty, blood sugar levels tend to increase. During a disease, for example, like celiac disease, that tends to be associated with low blood sugar. Smoking, which is considered a biologic category of factors, can cause an increase in blood sugar. Okay? And then we have uh, the use of insulin. If the insulin is used, if you're using insulin and it's expired, it's not going to work. You're going to get high blood sugar. Uh, the temperature of the room you're in or the environment can cause either high or low blood sugar. Just the temperature. And again, it varies. Generally speaking, cold tends to cause low blood sugar and higher temperatures tend to cause higher blood sugar. Sunburn, which is a stress on the body, causes hyperglycemia. Some people even experience blood sugar dysregulation when they go from one altitude to another. This isn't consistent from what I've seen, meaning that some people go to a high altitude. I was just in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I certainly noticed the more uh, issues with my breathing, but I, I did not uh, take my blood sugar. But some people might, at a higher altitude, have higher or lower blood sugar, or they might have a higher or low blood sugar effect at a lower altitude. So depending on how the stress affects you, that's what will be there. Now, I want to mention at this point that as you can see, there are many factors that affect and are affected by blood sugar, but mostly that affect blood sugar, ranging from insufficient sleep to allergies to hormonal changes to smoking to the temperature outside, the timing of your meals, the medications you might be taking, the level of your exercise, when you do your exercise, all these different things. And then people just say, oh, what should I do to change my diet for my blood sugar problem? Can you see how that almost never works? <laughs> it just doesn't. Certainly, there's not going to be a pill that's going to do it, not even the lipoic acid I mentioned. But I mentioned it because it is particularly good in some cases. And then I must say that probably stress, uh, family relationships, social pressures, um, people who, who have difficulty making decisions and, and choosing things in their lives and they're anxious, uh, or those that have... Um, uh, borderline personality disorder or different sorts of uh, emotional phobias. These mental emotional uh, problems uh, tend to be linked to the stress response and tend to cause abnormalities in the stress response that tend to increase blood sugar. You know, when I was in medical school, I did a rotation at the um, at a child psychological uh, center at um, Northern uh, Westchester Hospital, I believe it was, uh, or it was at Mount Kisco Medical Group, I believe. Mount Kisco Medical Group, Child Psychology. And they gave me an assignment where they had me sit in this room filled with files of patients. And then they said, you know, look over the labs and just, um, you know, let us know your thoughts. This was, the, this was <laughs> their way of getting rid of me because I asked way too many questions. So they basically stuck me in a room with a bunch of files. It was just like one of those, it was like one of those movies where you walk in a room and it goes from floor to ceiling with all these files and they slam the door on you and you, and you go to open the door and it's, it's locked. Well, that was what happened. So I started to look at these files 
And what I noticed on, particularly on a lot of young people there with various um, mental health issues or stressors that, that have them uh, go to the, the center, is there was a lot of hypoglycemia. I saw a lot of low blood sugar problems. I was amazed at it, so I started recording these. There was a few hyper, but it was very interesting, I thought, that most all of the, the individuals that had the hypoglycemia were uh, under this sort of psychological distress. I mean, what are the chances? So I, I spoke to the staff about it, and they didn't care. Uh, they, had, they did not care. Some of these labs had many abnormalities on them, and some of them serious, and no one even noticed them. Um, with, with all due respect, too, to the psychiatrists there and the, uh, the psychologists, they, they are not particularly well-trained in, in laboratory testing uh, or interpretation. So uh, even though I pointed these out, they just did not care. The point I'm trying to make is that we all are, uh, we all have imposed upon ourselves daily various stressors of a psychological nature, environmental uh, and, and electromagnetic and others. And a thorough holistic view is needed to identify factors that affect blood sugar. What my job is, is to put together a doable plan for people that identifies as many of these factors as possible, not to complicate their lives, but actually to say, no, 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 you don't have to do 25 different things every day. You need to do these five things because these are the things we identified that were appropriate. And then of course, adjust foods to the extent that they're necessary and supplementation, which there's always some basis for use of supplementation. Okay. So I hope you got something out of this conversation about the factors, the many factors that affect blood sugar, either increasing it or decreasing it, other than eating sugar. That's the whole point. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You've been listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Send those radio show ideas to info at blooddetective.com. That's info at blooddetective.com. I'm available to see you or anyone that you know or love that needs some help with their health, either in person or face-to-face, they could call me at 914-552-1442. That's 914-552-1442. Please also let me know what you think about my many videos and my free information that you can look up on the homepage of my website or under the blog section. All the radio shows are there or the video section. I'll speak with you soon. You've been listening to Dr. Michael Wald. Take care. Show me.